0: Hello, one more time, Cascades. I know you're awake. Good morning, everyone. All right. If you're a guest with us, welcome. My name is Alex. I'm the pastor of Cascades. And our heartbeat is to help lead people become fully devoted followers of Jesus and his way. And the reason for that is because we think that if we're going to see our city renewed— It won't happen apart from Jesus. Apart from embracing Jesus and embracing his way for life. And so that's what we seek to be is a community that's focused on him. We are in a series right now called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It is based on a book with the same title written by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. And this series is all about opening ourselves up, all of ourselves up to God so that we could experience the fullness of life that he promises and that we might become the people that he created and then redeemed us to be. Because emotionally healthy disciples will contribute to the renewal of our city. And we believe that God actually wants to do a healing work in us. And that I've, I've sensed this for a while, but um, what I've been praying even just over the last few weeks is that we would keep our, our hearts open to him. And it's because it's not really easy to acknowledge some of the things we've hit on over the last few weeks. Recognizing the areas of our lives that aren't working the way they're supposed to. Where there's pain or brokenness and sin, um, and so I want what I want to do this morning is kind of recap a little bit first where we've been and where we're heading. Uh, uh, over the past weeks, we talked about uh, the health of our hearts. And how Jesus is interested in removing sin uh, from our hearts, reconnecting us with our emotion uh, and the God-given desires of our hearts, and ultimately removing all that would hinder us from living in his love. We talked about how we have to reckon with the blessings and sins that uh, we've received from our families of origin and then learn to live in God's family in his way. And we talked about how uh, becoming people who look like Jesus demands that we trust him when we encounter the wall. When we encounter these moments where we're waiting on him, we don't have control over when that season ends. And we've talked about how we need to grieve our losses and pain just as Jesus does. Brad hit on that theme of how we enlarge in our soul through grieving our losses, both big and small, and how we see that in Jesus, a God who suffers and is fully able to relate to us. And then last week we talked about how we need pathways that lead us, to the love of our Heavenly Father. Abiding in Jesus is the way that we that consistently leads us back to His love. It's the way that roots us in His love, and it's this practice uh, of the daily office. You with me still? Gone through that? Okay. I skipped one wee, little week, right? Uh, the week that Brad came, and he talked about how we are to become a people of love. And Brad said that in, in Jesus' vision of life and what he called the kingdom of God— There's nothing more important than becoming the kind of people who receive and then give love. This morning, we're going to build off of that idea. uh, Brad, we really hit on uh, a lot of the the kind of theological basis for becoming a people of love rooted in who Jesus is. Today, we're going to talk about learning to love well. And there's going to be three passages that I'm just going to read with uh, this morning and want to see if you can catch the very subtle but common denominator in each one, all right? It's really hard to catch. Only those who pay really good attention will notice it, all right? So here's the first one. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here's the next one. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we still ourselves before you. And we ask that your spirit would move in and among us with the same kind of creative power that you did in the beginning of creation. We ask that your word would speak to us and bring about new life and in the place of brokenness and even despair, you would bring healing and joy so that we would become a people who receive your love and then give your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Scottish uh, theologian and missionary, his name was Leslie Newbegin. he says, Jesus has laid aside his life for us all. And the debt which we owe to him is to be discharged by our subjection to our neighbors in loving service. Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe the master. Love him, love others, love one another as he has loved you. You are his beloved children. Imitate him by walking in the way of love. All of the law hangs on this. One of the things that becomes really clear though in my life, in your life, you stick around the church long enough, you discover this painful truth. You can know that, but it doesn't express itself in your life. You can be fully devoted to following Jesus Christ while still continuing to follow the ways of relating that you learned in your family of origin. And many times, they don't align with the way of Jesus. In practice, this means Yes, you're following Jesus, but your following Jesus doesn't include relating to people in an emotionally healthy way. So rather than following Him, we're following those relational skills that we caught from our family. They weren't necessarily explicit, but we caught them by virtue of being in that family. And so here's what that can look like. You use silence to just voice your displeasure. You avoid conflict. You use yelling and combative language when you don't get your way. Lying or believing lies about others can just be something that can come about like, much easier for you. It's a struggle. Maybe you use passive-aggressive communication, including sarcasm. Maybe you'll complain about someone while never actually talking to the person. And unless you and I are equipped to do this well, to love well, then we'll just repeat those same things that we learned, that we caught in our homes, in our families of origin over and over again. All of these things are what Paul will call in Ephesians chapter 4, your old self. That apart from Jesus, our old nature will bend inwards towards ourselves. It'll cave in on ourselves. This is our sin nature. Our sin alienates us from God and others, but the way that it expresses itself or shows itself is in selfishness an absorption in ourselves and in our world. And one of the ways that our sin will express itself in our relationship with others is the way that we treat others then. Sin will always dehumanize and objectify people. People become objects that help you accomplish your goals. And here's how Peter Schizero can outline how that might look in some of our relationships. I walk in and dump all of my work on my assistant without saying hello I move people around on an organizational chart at a staff meeting as if they were objects or just subhuman. I talk about people in authority as if they were subhuman. I think one of the easiest places to see this outside of our workplaces would be in politics. Someone in authority, is super easy to just talk about them as if they were subhuman. I treat our children as if they are not in charge of their own freedom, dreams, and autonomy. I expect them to be the picture I have of them in my head. I am threatened when someone disagrees with my political views. I listen to my neighbor's problems and help them with tasks around their house, hoping they'll do something for me in return. And when they don't, I just move on to someone else. But here is what Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on Christ. The life of a Christian is a journey. It's a journey of putting off our old self and putting on the new self. This is the way of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ announces that God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only sets you free from your sin, from the consequences of sin, he sets you free from the pleasure and the power of it. You're a new creation, so you don't delight in living in that old way anymore. You don't want to live as if you are the center of your life anymore. And yet, there's still this struggle that we'll live with where we recognize that keeps happening. See, the way of Jesus pulls us leads us out of selfish narcissism towards loving others. And it does so by putting Jesus at the center of our lives. I had someone who saw this slide earlier say, so narcissism leads to loving others? I was like, no, 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 no. Okay, we've got to make sure we clarify that. No. What Jesus is doing is he wants to lead us out of this place of selfishness where we're consumed with ourselves, living in our sin towards loving others, him and others. And that only happens when he's at the center of our lives. And unless we get equipped by him, from him, to, with these new skills to love, we're going to simply just repeat these things that we've struggled with in the past, that we learned. So what I want to do is outline seven things that are included when we're learning to love well. And this will kind of build off of last week's uh, message on abiding in Jesus, because that's where we start. We learn to abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus and you will abide in the love of God. And if you abide in the love of God, you will be making your home in the most loving being in the universe. And the most loving being in the universe will make His home in you. Abide in His words. And the word who became human will be uh, will come and make his dwelling in you. Jesus will make his home in you. And this rhythm of practicing being present to God results in being present to others. Jesus was present to our Heavenly Father. He was constantly in prayer by himself, in prayer with others, and it led him to pay attention to others and express the very love of God to them. And in so doing, Jesus was showing them how much love the Father had for them how much the Father valued them, how much He cherished them and delighted in them. Being with God, the Father enables us to love. And the same is true. that You see that in His disciples. It'll be the same for us. As you look at Scripture, you see that they're transformed by God. When we regularly encounter God's grace for us, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness, his gentleness towards us, it does something in us that enables us to express it to others. Secondly, we learn to see. We learn to see others and recognize that they're different from us. In Genesis, we hear of the story of Hagar, and she encounters God care for her and Afterwards, she processes, she, said, she calls God the living one who sees me. In Exodus, God reveals what he is like to Moses, and he says that he is the God who has seen the misery of his people, that he has heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and he has come to rescue them. He sees, he hears, and so he comes. He sees you know that song that we are so familiar with, uh, Amazing Grace. John Newton will say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound to save the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There's something that God does that enables us to see Him. But from that place, we're able to see everything else differently, including Others. It's like the Apostle Paul. We're told in Acts 9, he's breathing threats against the church. He's completely against Jesus and his way. He's trying to stop this movement that's starting out. And then he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And something happens right after he encounters him. We're told that he goes like blind for three days. And it's not until Ananias comes and prays for him that we're told these scales almost like fall off of his eyes. He has this blindness, and it's this picture of the spiritual blindness to Jesus that he had. But when we first see Jesus and who he is, that he's accepted us and continues to accept us, that we find his grace, we we see something changes in us. We have this blindness removed, and we have new eyes to see him and others. And one of the things we have to learn to see is ourselves, learning to identify our own desires, our own thoughts, and differentiating them from other people's thoughts and desires and who they are. You might have learned how to suppress your thoughts or your desires because you didn't want to mess with your perception of harmony in your family. Or on the flip side, you might, have, you might be prone to demanding that people be the version of them that you want them to be. And you actually grew up in an environment where it was very normal to be Very confrontational. But when Jesus comes to us, he doesn't just, uh, he comes to us and finds us as we should be. And he loves us there. He loves us with our warts and all. And one of the things that starts to happen is when we start to recognize that he does and that he's doing this work in us, but that he's okay with the fact that we're not there yet we start to recognize we can do that with other people too. That there are these warts and all these other things in their life, and we we may not love them, but we love the person, and we can be there with them. Jürgen Moltmann, he writes, accept one another. He he, he cites Romans 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Only this attitude can give us a new orientation and break through our limitations so that we can spring over our narrow shadows. It opens us up for others as they really are, so that we gain a longing for and an interest in them as a result of this, we become able actually to forget ourselves and to focus on the way Christ has accepted us. The third thing that we uh, in, in learning to love well is we learn to listen to others, we see but we listen first Peter chapter 5 reads cast all of your anxiety onto him being the lord because he cares for you and one of the things that will happen is as we learn that he cares for us and listens to us we can care for others and listen to them in christ we have someone who hears us and cares for us the father listens to the son the son listens to us we listen to the son and we also listen to others This guy, Pete Hughes, he, uh, he, he shared this, uh, it's actually a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote, and, and it comes from the book Life Together. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when talking about how we listen to others, he says something beautiful. He says, the first service one owes to others in a community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for others is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives God's word, but also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. Man, talk about that. Like, that is not easy. It's, e- it's easy to he- hear this, to read this, but to practice this when you're tired or when you're busy, when you're upset, when someone confronts you in a way you don't like being confronted, that we seek to listen, that we do God's work when we listen to them. How might we we do that? Just a few ways we could do that is we actually give people a chance to speak and finish what they're saying. Maybe when they do confront us or when they tell us something's wrong, we we be quiet and, and be still recognizing that because they are made in the image of God, they are one of God's representatives. And even if they get it wrong in representing Him, we can still give them that honor of being still before them and listening. And when they finish, we can reflect back to them and say, if I heard you right, this is what you're saying. Did I hear you right? And when they finish actually giving them the opportunity to share more, say, is there anything else? Is there more? Or if you're like me, sometimes someone will share something with you and you're like, wow, there's a bunch there and I don't know what to focus on. This question can be really helpful. Of everything you shared, what's the most important thing? We want to be a people who, who love well, and part of that is listening. Fourth, we learn to speak truth. Ephesians 4 verse 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. And there's actually two parts to this that Paul will give us. He says, "Put off falsehood, speak truthfully." Take something off, put something else on. There's that we've grown accustomed to people not being truthful. To lying, to making bold outright lies about themselves, about events around them, about other people. And it becomes so difficult to know what's true and what isn't and you can see this kind of division and this distrust that's so prevalent in our culture we've lived through it like it's not just the last four uh, four years but in some ways it feels like it's intensified there's almost a tolerance for a deceit lying and that's not the way of Jesus. It is not the way of his people. God doesn't d- dwell outside of reality. He doesn't dwell outside of truth. There's no ounce of falsehood or deceit in him. He is the truth, and he speaks the truth, and he leads us into truth. And as people made in his image, in the likeness of God, we're called to be a people who live in the truth about God, about ourselves, about others, who speak the truth about God, ourselves, and others. And you know what one area where we... Can so easily put on falsehood without realizing it is, it's when we make assumptions about people without confirming it. I'm fully guilty of doing this. Peter Scazzaro notes, every time I make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed me without confirming it, I believe a lie about this person in my head. This assumption is a misrepresentation of reality because I have not checked it out with the other person. It is very possible I'm believing something untrue. He'll go on to say, When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing, hidden assumptions, we create a counterfeit world. When we do this, it can properly be said that we exclude God because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. And then he says, "In in doing so, we wreck relationships by creating endless confusion and conflict." This is just one way we put on falsehood without even realizing. Where we make these assumptions about someone, and then we don't actually check those assumptions. Hey, I'm kind of feeling this, or I'm not sure about this. I just needed to clarify it. We need to put off falsehood, but we also need to speak truth. And one of the ways that this can come out where we actually struggle to speak truth is when someone has done something to hurt us. We don't, they've done something to hurt us. Not not, might not even be intentional. It was unintentional, but we feel it. It really hurt us, and we don't bring it up. So we keep pushing it down, except that every time they come around or do something that reminds you of it, you feel it start bubbling up again. And you just try to be like, it's not a big deal. It's whatever. It's not worth it. I don't want to you know, I don't want to talk about it now, or I don't want to deal with it. And they don't even know that you still feel it. We'll minimize this issue until it, one day it blows up. Not even, you might not even blow up on that person. You've just been carrying it for so long, someone else ends up receiving it. And it's not really about one thing. It's about all of it coming out in that moment. And then if it is with that person, they're confused and rightfully so because you never told them what was bothering you. And what we need to understand is when we do that, we are not keeping peace. That's what we tell ourselves. I don't want to mess with the peace, with the harmony. But you're lying to yourself and you're failing to be honest with your neighbor. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And peacemaking is disruptive. Sometimes you have to break the appearance of peace to get real peace by bringing up the hurt, the brokenness, the pain, and beginning to reconcile. And if you don't, what can happen is you can have this infection develop, this relational infection that begins to spread to the rest of your life, affecting not just that relationship, but also coloring the way you see other people and then a whole community. And then you begin to withdraw from the community. And that's not how we were meant to live. Whenever you live in community, you will have conflict. You can't act like it doesn't happen. And when you do, though, the end result is bitterness. It's lasting damage to a community. We have to learn to communicate through conflict. We can't let this bitterness simmer. Look, I'm not saying we need to go and confront every little thing. You know, like, you said you'd be here at this time. You didn't show up. And just, I'm not saying that, like, but we have to learn how to communicate even when there's discomfort. And one of the things I've learned about our church is we love harmony. We love to be together. We love to eat together, hence what we're doing afterwards. But we also have to learn how to communicate when something has been done that hurts us and disappoints us and do it in a healthy way. And what's fascinating is Paul's reason for saying we need to do this because Paul will say that we must be truthful with one another because we are one body. It's not that we're Siamese twins, but that we, all followers of Jesus, are his body, his hands, and his feet. He is the head. And Timothy Gombas puts it like this. I belong to others in the church. We are intimately joined by the Spirit, and we belong to one another. Because I have new connections and responsibilities, I must not deceive those who I belong to. So put off falsehood and speak truth. And when you do this, you don't have to project what you think they're feeling. You can just share what your thoughts are. I feel this way. I'm not sure you were aware or intended to do this. I just wanted to check. I wanted to check in with you. You can be brief. And if they, uh, you know, misunderstand you, you can clarify or correct. But we need to learn how to do this in a way that honors the other person and still honors us and what, who we are and our thoughts and our experience. And this isn't easy, but it's the task of being the people of God together. Like, how many times do we not see this picture? We see the unhealthy picture. The church is actually supposed to offer a different picture of the way that we relate to one another. Number five, we learn to clarify expectations. Learning to clarify expectations. If expectations are not mutually agreed upon, they're not valid. They're just unfair. And so often we have expectations for each other that we never communicate, and so then we get upset and this happens in our homes in our workplaces and community groups neighbors you just name it this this happens all the time and sometimes what will happen is there's an expectation that hasn't been articulated but we feel it and so someone invites us to an event and there's an expectation you come to the event but that was never agreed upon and you feel it and so now you're begrudgingly coming to the event and you're like okay I need to find a reason so that I can leave rather you know than actually communicating something there and I'm not talking about here, you know, just wanted to respect another person. You know it's really important to them. It doesn't matter to you as much, but you care about them, so you show up, and it's about showing them that. I'm talking about those things where they're never, ever communicated, and it's ongoing. So let me just, like, to differentiate these two things. These unfair expectations are unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and not agreed upon. Expectations that we're not aware of until someone disappoints us. So we're not even aware of it ourselves until the person disappoints us. They're unrealistic. We actually have illusions about other people and our expectations of them. We want them to maybe be available to us all the time. They're unspoken. We've never told them what we expect, but we get upset when they don't meet those expectations. And they're not agreed upon because maybe, maybe, We've actually expressed these thoughts, but the other person never agreed to them. This can end up being just unhealthy, unfair. And one of the things I was thinking about is whenever God established a covenant with his people, he always made clear what the expectations were. And we would do well to learn from him in communicating to one another. Healthy or valid expectations are conscious. You're aware of them. I'm aware of them, the ones that I have for another person. They're realistic. I've actually gone through thinking, is this realistic of an expectation I could have for them? They're spoken to the other person clearly, directly, respectfully, not sarcastically, and they're agreed upon. That person's aware of them, but then they also agree to them. One of the helpful exercises you might want to go through this week is thinking through, where am I disappointed with someone? Have I been conscious of this expectation? Is it realistic? Have I shared that with them? Have they agreed upon it? Is there something that we can talk about to come to a place where we can agree? Sixth, and finally, it's learning to identify your emotional allergies. Peter Scazzaro will say, an emotional allergy is an— um, it's, let me just see here. Intense. My notes said in, intern. Intern reaction. No, an intense reaction to something in the present that reminds us consciously or unconsciously of an event from our history. All of us have different stories. But one of the things about following Jesus is when all these different people and all the different stories come together, our experiences will impact us, our past experiences as we relate to one another. And sometimes it's not like a wound that's open, but there's scar tissue, where there's a sensitivity in that area. And one of the things about emotional allergies is that they often cause us to relate to people in our old patterns, in our old self. Where we are treating people as objects, not as image bearers. And we're not intending to, but it's a learned thing. And part of learning to love well is learning to step into a new way, the way of Jesus. And so one of the ways that that can come up is like when someone speaks to you in a tone that reminds you of how your parent was always irritable with you, and it triggers something when they do that. Or when your spouse wants to go away, and it triggers a feeling of emotional unavailability that you felt as a child with your parents. Or when someone in a position of power does something that triggers memories of not being appreciated, or saying one thing but doing another, and thereby feeling unsafe and insecure. Now you're in a different workplace, but someone's doing something and they're not even aware that it's causing this, you to experience this. Part of learning to love well is learning to recognize, oh, this is some of my stuff. This is just my, my life and I need to recognize this because it's going to impact my relationships and then beginning to try to work through it. There's this organization called Pairs, and they created an exercise for people to do with others like their spouse or with roommates or whoever or just on their own. To become aware of these things because that's part of the journey. And so uh, there's a slide for this that gives you some examples of like an, an emotional allergy you trigger in me. It's, it's like the, you learning to recognize them in yourself. When this allergy happens, what I think or tell myself is. When, the, when I, this allergy happens, I feel when this allergy happens, what I think and feel about myself or even, ha- uh, or even having these feelings is, and you're and you naming it. What happens inside of me, the behavior you see then from me is, or this allergy relates to my history in this area, or whatever it might be. What this does as we go through this exercise is make us aware of how much of our past comes into the present. And that might be discouraging in one sense. We'd be like, well, actually, I don't want to revisit that. I don't want to go there. You don't have to let it do that, though. One of the promises we have in Scripture is that we are God's handiwork, and His promise is to finish the work He's doing in us. And as people of God, what we want to do is hold space for each other as we all have these different things in our lives that impact us today and impact our relationships here. And we live in this tension that the kingdom of God has already come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. And we hold space for that, recognizing that even that reality in our old life is there. The gap between His promise and our reality closes, though, as we see the connections to our past and invite Jesus into those moments. Now, this is a lot, and I recognize this, and I'm not even saying we need to get all of this today. What I'm saying is these are parts of like what it means to put off the old self and put on the new and begin to love well. And we do that over our lives. But I think if we are willing to step into this with Jesus we have this beautiful opportunity to witness to our city a different way. Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, there's something about the way we will relate to one another. We will deal with our conflict. We will recognize our past. We will express ourselves to one another That actually witnesses about who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives, what he's done in our world. Disciples of Jesus who are emotionally healthy, churches that are emotionally healthy, will contribute to the renewal of all things in our city. That's what Jesus did. There's that saying, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Healthy people cultivate healthy communities. And so the church being a community that is full of emotionally healthy disciples is vital to the flourishing of our city. It is not just for you and your individual life. It is for us and even our city. And the vision extends beyond our church to the communities that God has actually placed us in, in our workplaces, our families, our friends, community groups, classrooms, neighborhoods. What we are invited to do is say, Lord, I'm willing. I recognize there's a gap but I'm willing to journey with you in this. So I'm going to pray a prayer that Peter Scazzaro uh, shares in his book. And I'll pray it on behalf of us. And then we're going to enter into a time of communion. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We are aware of how often we treat people as it's. As objects, instead of looking at them with the eyes and heart of Christ, we have unhealthy ways of relating that are deeply embedded in us. Please change us, make us vessels to spread mature, steady, reliable love. so that people with whom I come in contact sense your tenderness and your kindness. Deliver me from false peacemaking that is driven by fear. And Jesus, help me to love well like you. Grow me, I pray, into an emotionally mature adult through the Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.